1959, four-year-old Daniel Barta disappeared from a campsite located in Perdido Bay, Alabama. He was spending the morning playing on the banks of the water while his parents sorted some fishing equipment. But when his parents couldn't find him after a frantic search of the immediate area, they realised their little boy was gone. What makes this missing person's case all the more peculiar are the number of disturbing events leading up to Danny's disappearance. Could these chilling occurrences be linked to the four-year-old's disappearance? Despite many theories involving accidental drowning or being attacked by a predator, the Bata family and even authorities are more inclined to believe that young Danny was abducted by a stranger. This is Daniel's story. Daniel Barter was born December 12, 1954, to parents Paul and Maxine Barter. Paul and Maxine had been together what seemed like forever. Their relationship started very romantic. He was an army soldier and walked into the diner Maxine Thompson was working in. She took his order and it was love at first sight. The couple would marry and eventually have seven children, five boys and two girls. Danny was number five in the pecking order of the children. In June 1959, when our story takes place, Paul was a stockroom manager for Morrison's Cafeteria in Mobile, Alabama, and Maxine had what would have been the most demanding yet rewarding job in the world. She was a stay-at-home mum to 13-year-old Wanda, 11-year-old Stephen, 10-year-old Ronald, 8-year-old Bobby, 4-year-old Daniel, or Danny as his family lovingly called him, Michael and 1-year-old Teresa. The chaos and love in that family, priceless. The family living on the 1700 block of Thrush Drive in Mobile. June 16, 1959. Paul and Maxine took their children on a camping trip to Pedido Bay, an hour away from their home. Absent for the trip was their eldest child, Wanda, who was spending the summer with her maternal grandmother, Rennie Thompson, in Toxley, Alabama, and the two youngest children, Michael and Teresa, who were deemed too young for camping and they were staying home with their aunt. Also joining the Barters on this camping trip was Paul's brother, Jim Barter, and his 11-year-old son, Renew. That first night, Paul and Jim slept in the tent while Maxine slept with the children in Jim's station wagon. And while this was a family camping trip, it was also a camping trip with a purpose. Jim had recently purchased some land in Pedido Bay, a little ways back from the beach. The plan was to build a holiday home for the extended family, but there was quite a bit of work that needed to be done before they could start construction. There was sand and undergrowth and swampy marsh that needed to be cleared. Despite all of the work, it was a perfect location for the large family. The water was quite shallow, and you could walk out some ways before the water would go past your knees. It was ideal for the younger children. Early the following morning, June 17, 1959, Maxine took Danny and one of his brothers to a grocery store, to buy the whole camping tribe some breakfast, as well as soft drinks and a few snacks. Now it is reported in some earlier contemporary news articles that it was Paul that took the boys to the store and not Maxine. But we now know it was definitely Maxine at the grocery store. 
Danny was still dressed in only his grey boxer shorts that he slept in the night before. No shirt and no shoes. And it wasn't a big deal. Danny was going to stay in the car with his brother while Maxine ducked into the store. And it was quite warm already. I know my seven-year-old would live in just his boxes all summer if I let him. Danny was comfortable and happy and excited for the camping trip. When Maxine and the boys returned, she prepared breakfast while Paul ran amuck with the children. Honestly, I'm a big fan of camping, and it sounds like they were having an amazing time. Danny got the treat of a lifetime for him. Maxine allowed him to have a soda, which she hoped would distract him long enough until they were ready to take him fishing in the shallows, something he would not stop asking about. Sometime between 9.30 and 10am, Danny was playing nearby on the sandy banks of Perdido Bay while Maxine and Paul started to untangle the fishing lines and put the hooks on, getting bait ready and all the fishing things. However, when Maxine went to call her preschooler to come back, he was nowhere to be seen. Maxine and Paul searched frantically for Danny for around 10 minutes, but they couldn't find any sign of him at all not even the soda can he was drinking from. Maxine ran to the nearest home and reported her son missing to police. The search for Danny included upwards of 2,000 people. This included 300 members of the US Navy and local military bases, like the Naval Air Station Pensacola, along with other bases along the Alabama and Florida coast. Also involved was 150 law enforcement officers and firemen from Alabama, Florida and surrounding states. Volunteers would be arranged in groups of 25 and they walked shoulder to shoulder over a five square mile radius through the surrounding woods and swamps. Skin divers worked to search the bottom of the bay. Jeeps, helicopters and horses were also brought in. Dr. S.R. Monroe, a veterinarian from Garsden, Alabama, saw newspaper articles on Danny's case. And since he owned Champion Bloodhounds, he offered the use of his dogs to assist in the search. So three days after Danny went missing, Dr. Monroe and his dogs were right in the thick of it, looking for the missing boy. These bloodhounds combed a five-mile area, trying to track Danny's scent. The dogs did find his scent and they tracked it to a nearby road where it suddenly stopped. And they repeated this several times, with the dogs always going back to that same spot. This indicated that Danny was picked up by someone or something and carried away. Quote, the child did not leave the scene walking. Unquote. After a week, the search was escalated. I think by this stage, it was obviously a recovery mission. And if they were going to find Danny's remains, it had to be now. Especially given the significant alligator presence in the area. But it would be now the bottom of the lake that was dragged. Sinkholes and thickets were searched. Dynamite was tossed into the bay and other surrounding areas where Danny might have fallen into, with the hopes of jarring a body loose. After this, though, the search would be called off. In all, this would be one of the most extensive searches in Baldwin County history. But despite all of the effort, no trace of what happened to Danny could be found. Considering no body was recovered from the bay, authorities were pretty confident Danny had not walked into the water and drowned. 
and given the undergrowth bordering the campsite was thick and prickly, we know Danny was barefoot and wearing only a pair of boxer shorts. Add on to that, Danny was deathly afraid of the water, refusing to go in at all without holding a trusted adult's hand. But all of that altogether, authorities ruled out any chance Danny drowned in the depths of Perdido Bay. Another popular theory at the time was that maybe Danny had been snatched by an alligator that roamed the area. This particular area was swampy and infested with alligators and snakes. Authorities definitely considered this. They killed and gutted two alligators to check for human remains, but nothing was found. And since no trace of the soft drink that Danny was drinking from was ever found either, this led police to finally accept that Danny was abducted. This delay infuriated the family. Maxine was adamant from the start that someone had taken her son. Quote, you could see the bridge going into Florida from the campsite. Someone could have grabbed Danny, got onto US 98, and been gone in a couple of hours. Unquote. Police initially wouldn't hear anything of it and thought it made more sense he wandered off in the remote area himself and drowned. Heartbreakingly, Maxine always believed that someone took Danny to raise him as their own. Quote, he was a good and beautiful boy. If they wanted him bad enough to kidnap him, they would take good care of him. Unquote. Something then came to light which supported Maxine's strong beliefs that someone took her son. It all started about a month before Danny disappeared. Maxine was hanging clothes to dry on the clothesline in their backyard when she saw a strange man parking his car in front of their house. This was unusual enough to make Maxine uncomfortable. She decided to confront the man and see who he was. There was a lot of young girls who lived in the neighbourhood and he had no reason to be there in her eyes. But as she approached, the men covered his face with a newspaper to prevent Maxine seeing it and he drove off. Not long after this, a neighbour's German shepherd dog was running around the backyard, barking towards the barter's side. The neighbour went to see what had agitated him. This was when she saw a man peering into the barter's boy's bedroom window, where the boys were asleep at the time. Now, unfortunately, by the time the neighbour alerted Maxine, the men had gone. Mobile police department were called, and they found several distinct footprints in the soil under the window. Photos and casts were made, but the whereabouts of these now, along with most of the case file, are unknown, most likely destroyed in the decades that followed. But the most disturbing incident occurred on the day of Danny's disappearance, at the Lillian grocery store where Maxine left the boys in the car while she raced inside to grab a few items. During those few short minutes, an unknown man pulled up alongside the barter station wagon and just stared at the boys for a few minutes before driving off. This bothered Danny's brother enough that he told his mother immediately when she returned to the car with the groceries. But she simply waved it off as her son exaggerating and didn't think anything further of it. Not until Danny disappeared only hours later. Now, all of these incidents led authorities to suspect that maybe the barters had been stalked for some time maybe by someone who wanted a child of their own. And Danny being only four years old was young enough to not have formed long-term memories. And if abduction was the scenario here, 
The Barter family were not wealthy, and since they didn't receive any communication from the supposed kidnapper, a ransom motive was unlikely. The abduction theory seems to be the prevailing theory today, and given no trace has been found, it does give the surviving Barter siblings and authorities some hope that Danny is still alive and a grown man, oblivious to the fact he is Daniel Barter. During the 50th anniversary of Danny's disappearance, said Baldwin County Sheriff Huey Mack Jr., quote, As we approach the 50th anniversary, it is still likely that Daniel Barter is alive somewhere in the United States, not knowing he is Daniel Barter, unquote. The case would go cold for many decades, until 2008, when the FBI would announce they were reopening the cold case after a conversation in a doctor's office was overheard relating to the case. Now, the details of this conversation have never been made public, but it must have been significant. That following year, Danny's siblings returned to the same campsite in Perdido Bay where Danny went missing for a candlelight vigil in remembrance of their missing brother. Said his youngest sister, Teresa, who was only a year old at the time of his disappearance, quote, I know where I can visit the cemetery for mum and dad. With Danny, we just don't know. We don't care if it's good news or bad news. We just want to know after all these years. Unquote. Danny's disappearance even received international attention by being featured at the end of an episode of the CBS series Without a Trace in April of 2009. Quote, the more you bring any missing person up, the more chance some little something some wording, something to flash back in someone's memory, brings back something that we can work with, unquote. Unfortunately, in the aftermath of Danny's disappearance, Maxine could not deal with the constant scrutiny of those around her. Due to Paul's military service, the family were approved for a Veterans Affairs loan, buying a home several suburbs away on Dog River. But the memories were still too painful and in 1962 the family relocated to Choctaw County, 115 miles away, and then to Texas in 1963. At age 46, Danny's father Paul died of a heart attack, and his mother Maxine passed away in 1995, both not knowing the fate of their son. Several of Danny's siblings have also died in the decades since he went missing including a brother born after his disappearance that Danny never had the chance to meet. Danny's surviving siblings, the FBI and local law enforcement have not given up. Family members have submitted DNA samples to national missing persons databases in the chance any evidence ever turns up that can be tested to determine if it belongs to Danny. And the FBI still have him on their website, showing his smiling face taken not long before he went missing, alongside an age progression depicting what Danny would look like today in his 60s. Daniel Barter was four years old at the time of his disappearance. He was three foot and 50 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes. If Danny was still alive today, he would be getting ready to celebrate his 68th birthday with his siblings and most likely children and grandchildren. And that's what makes me the most sad about these cases. So much is lost. Lives, futures, memories. 
So much possibility stolen away from the missing person and their families. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Daniel Barter, please contact the Baldwin County Sheriff's Office on 251 952 If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.